people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam, and we are here with Blair Taylor. Uh, who is the program director at the Institute for Social Ecology. And he's also written an article um, called Alt-Right uh, Ecology, which appeared in an um, edited collection that Bernard Fortuner, who we had on the show a few episodes back, um, talking about eco-fascism. Um, at that collection is called Far, The Far Right in the Environment. The, the, the piece is called Alt-Right Ecology, and I think we're just kind of basically going to go through the argument of what that piece is. In some ways, it... it um, and this is just kind of on a, on a personal note. Um, I, I read this article in 2019 when it first came out. And there's a lot of overlap between what we accidentally wrote in our thing without directly uh, realizing that we'd got the ideas from you. So I, I, I want to kind of acknowledge that debt and, uh, and go through those, those arguments. Um, that's towards the, the end of the article. Yes, that's, that's good. That's, yeah. That's the um, point. It, hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me that um, kind of two years later, we would be... <laughs> reconstructing your arguments, but I guess this is independent <laughs> corroboration. In the article, at the end of the article, you make a series of really good points and trying to situate and kind of read alt-right ecology. And one of the ways in which you do that is by understanding it in relation to neoliberal environmentalism or progressive environment, progressive neoliberalism with a particular focus on neoliberal environmentalism within that. Yeah, this ostensibly left um, constellation. Yeah, well, that is the kind of like the oppositional force they're, they're many, in many ways trying to fight against. So they're situating themselves against this George Soros-backed, um, liberal, progressive, um, identitarian in some ways, although not in the ways they prefer, um, anti-racist and, you know, ostensibly environmental um, milieu. So they can position themselves as the true kind of benefactors, the true protectors of the environment. These people are just paying lip service, these environmental ideas, um, while in fact, you know, enriching their Wall Street plutocratic buddies, you know, uh, fueling this quote unquote empire of nothing that this, they don't really mean it. Um, and at the same time, they, they're, they're representatives of the kind of amoral mongrelizing uh, forces of capitalism of the, the environmental destructive nature of capitalism, but also of, you know, um, immigration and uh, multiculturalism, anti-nationalism, cosmopolitanism, all these things that um, the far right sees as the enemy is the problem and that, you know, the ecological right um, gives an explicitly ecological analysis of. In order to kind of like understand this like empire of nothing, this kind of um, wasteland in some sense in which we kind of find ourselves like a spiritual wasteland um it's it's interesting because in, in on the on the one hand it's possible to read the alt-right and particularly it's what we might call this kind of tributary cultures sort of cultures that led into it um as emblematic of a kind of absolute nihilism that for example wendy brown writes about mm -hmm. and at the same time through the alt-right in this kind of transformation as you go through the movement from 2016 or 2015 through to let's say 2018 when these kind of natural currents start to become more more apparent as the kind of the split with trump happens and so on that's a kind of drilling down into a kind of forced integrity and so i'm wondering how or, or a, a kind of forced conviction you know we really mean this no one else really means their politics and in some yeah. sense the the critique of the that the far right brings to bear on the rest of um, the rest of politics is that none of it is sincere. It's all various kinds of you know, games and so on. So I was wondering, how do you see that idea of integrity or that idea of sincerity in politics and the far right's presentation of itself as integrated, you know, serious and so on? How does that interact with its conceptions of nature? Mm -hmm. Is there a link yeah. there? Absolutely. It's, it's the return of the real and nature is that ultimate real. It's that ultimate underlying realm of natural law. Nature is this timeless realm of competition, of hierarchy, of a brutal struggle for survival, of difference and differentiation of different species fighting it out. And, you know, all this like liberal hogwash is just, you know, the sediment on top of all this. This is, um, you know, it's unnatural to, to just put it in, in a word. And of course, like the, the connotations of, of different groups, you know, whether it's nomadic, you know, immigrant groups, whether it's Jews as kind of these urban sophisticates who have no homeland of their own, et cetera. It's a, it's a very useful projection screen for right wing um, 
thinkers, groups, and actors to kind of project onto. And, you know, as, as I point out in the article, they have a very strong case to make in this regard as, you know, ecology only became kind of a left-wing discourse in the last 40, 50 years. And but prior to that, was very much associated with this, this kind of like racialized tribalism, um, social Darwinism, giving all these elements. And that's, that's what I argue in the end of that book chapter is Wendy Brown kind of <clears throat> um, posited this relationship between this kind of amoral neoliberalism as kind of, even though it seems on the one hand kind of um, in, in tension with or in contradiction with this like robust normative uh, neoconservatism, they actually have kind of a dialectical relationship and that you eventually need that return of the real, you need that normative substance, you need that meaning um, that the kind of, you know, Christian millenarian uh, nationalist, blah, 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 of neoconservatism comes and fills the ethical void that's been hollowed out by, by, um, by neoliberalism. And you can make the same case, I would say, for the kind of like, you know, market-based environmentalism of neoliberalism, like, you know, carbon credits, tax credits, things like this, that now we need to go back to this kind of deeper right-wing ecology. Um, so I think there's a lot of relationships between these two. And what I was trying to do is basically update Wendy Brown's argument and, and looking at the role like alt-right ecology or eco-fascism can play a similar role in offering something, as you said, that's that feels real, that feels substantive, that feels authentic. Um, you know, And this overlaps with all these classic ideas of right-wing thought, uh, you know, Adorno's critique of Heidegger, the jargon of authenticity and people want this. They, they feel, you know, rootless. They feel like they're atomized individuals in neoliberalism. So the alt-right can come along and offer them these thick identities rooted in the land, rooted in nature, rooted in these things that are, are coded as, as good. And in many ways, the left actually has played an important role, at least in the last 50 years, in coding them as good, whether that's having an, an, an identity and especially an ethnic identity, being an environmental subject, you know, protecting nature. Um, <clears throat> these things are very, you know, powerful um, political terrains or categories or values that are up for grabs. They're, they, they've never been settled. And we've tended to think, you know, project the last 40, 50 years of political history back further when in fact, these same ideas had much, both both uh, identity and, and, and uh, cultural difference on the one hand and environmentalism had more or less more right-wing um, assumptions and political trajectories. Yeah, that's really great. I, 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 it just occurs to me now that there's a that in some sense the the list of things you um, gave at the beginning, uh, hierarchy and so on. Um, I would add in that there are two different things in there which are kind of contradictory, um, which is moralism and amoralism, and the tension between moralism and amoralism in far right thinking in general. And I would suggest, I mean, I'm just thinking about it now, so like this mm -hmm. is probably a bit too hasty, but I would suggest that um, in some ways nature is the thing that allows the resolution of that binary. Yeah, it is. It is the mor it is the moral thing that um, speaks to no moral law, or something like this. Uh, or it's the amoral thing that speaks to a moral law that is itself right. amoral, or that right. is like kind of entirely orthogonal to, um, or um, <laughs> that's a stupid word to use, um, independent of um, the, um, uh, the the morality of humans and so on, and therefore yeah. can uh, in expressions of power, naked, given just like whatever power. Um, uh, power without reason, um, in expressions of that power, it can do whatever work you want it to do. It can either express the morality of itself or it can express the amorality of itself. And it can always be appealed to because it can resolve this contradiction. Um, that stuff about the dialectic of um, neoconservatism and uh, what Wendy Brown calls the far right. And and I think, yeah, um, definitely in this case, the alt-right um, is, is really, really fascinating. I'm going to come back to that. Um, but for now, I want to ask you about this contestation of ecology, the contestation of like the idea of ecology. And in particular, what is kind of absent in pretty much all the instances of alt-right ecology that you list, which is climate change. Mm -hmm. um, climate change is the, um, I mean, maybe this is a bit excessive again, but like climate change is the ecological issue of our times. Um, mm -hmm. It is what environmentalism means now in this particular conjuncture. Um, right. And yet it is absent. And so I wanted you to kind of like suggest reasons or like speak to that absence. What, why can't it appear? Why is you know it impossible for there to be, um, or do you think it is impossible for there to be an alt-right response to climate change? Definitely not. I think um, one reason it has been is because, and especially this is in the United States context, it's a little bit different in Europe, is because of that strong background of climate denialism, where it was just it was just seen as a cultural Marxist plot, lie, hoax, whatever. Um, not really a serious concern, not, not a serious um, issue, but that's starting to change. I mean, I think in, in the book chapter, I quote 
someone basically taking more or less a kind of pluralist agnostic um, take on the matter that, you know, some people agree it's an issue, other people disagree, but it doesn't matter because ultimately alt-right politics are, we agree on this and it'll be good for the environment one way or the other. So we don't have to like have a, a hard line, but I think that's actually been shifting and it's the, the farthest right actors and eco-fascist actors, you know, folks affiliated with the base, Adam Waffen division, um, the people who are paying attention to far-right shooters, who have taken on more of that ecological um, component. And of course they're giving it a racist, exclusionary, um, anti-Semitic um, interpretation. So I think that that's, that's going to keep changing. Um, obviously like, you know, more and more young people have grown up in a post-climate change world where those things are just accepted facts of, of, of the terrain. And you're still always going to have denialists. And that's of course a big part of the conspiratorial worldview of the far right. But I think increasingly people will accept that. I mean, I don't know if um, our discussion previous is gonna made it into the recording. So I'll just reiterate that, you know, where I live in the Pacific Northwest right now, we're going to break all known historical temperature records this week. In fact, today, um, we're going to have 101 degrees weather, which has never been recorded. And in two days, 108 degrees, which is just absolutely, you know, impossible. It's, it's, it's never happened. So they're grappling with that. They're grappling with the same material conditions and they have to give a certain analysis to it. And, uh, you know, typically it's population, it's immigration, it's general cultural decline, things like that. And I think Europe has been a little bit more, um, quote unquote, ahead of the curve on this um, because, you um, Perhaps there's less less um, science denialism uh, on the right in some ways. Perhaps perhaps it's the openness of the parliamentary system that it can be a new issue to to recruit people in. But like the national rally in France has you know um, made some very you know uh, clear statements about climate change and other um, European groups are. And and the further right you get in the American spectrum, the more likely they are to see that as a problem. The more likely they are to you know have affinities for people like Ted Kaczynski who you know just we need to go off the grid we need to get back to nature get back to the land etc I mean Adam Waffen division that I mentioned you know they they hold him up there with um then they're part of their holy trinity um this is uncle Ted Ted Kaczynski the Unabomber and uh you know here's this here's this like guy preparing for collapse living you know environmentally sustainably out in the wilderness and uh, they see him as this kind of like romantic heroic figure who you know ted was right as their their slogan or their hashtag goes yes uh, i i want to come kind of think about this this ted kaczynski appropriation as well i mean he's he's been uh, latched onto as in some ways the most um extreme figure in what you might think of as a kind of a, a pantheon of anti-tech anti-tech radicals. Um, mm. It's a really interesting article, which I'll put in the show notes, um, trying to trace his intellectual lineage, which came out about um, a month ago or something like that. It's really fascinating. Um, and then forward from Ted Kaczynski through to um, this Mexican group called Individuals Tending Towards the Wild and yeah. so on, who in some ways are kind of the um, inheritors. Uh, this is really provocative and I'm not sure I want to, it's true, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, yeah. who in some ways the, the, the inheritors of a certain kind of um, misanthropy um, mm. that uh, comes to like, predominate in uh, not not exclusively in it, but um, through a tendency called deep ecology, which um, perhaps you'd like to comment on links between deep ecologists and eco-fascists. I feel like those links are more tenuous than most people give them than state them as, but I've just uh, contradicted that. I've just said they, they're real. But I'm trying to link yeah. towards the ITS and deep ecology, which seems like a reasonable right. connection, but I think that it's it's probably not the case that anyway. Um, what 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 do, what do you think about this? Yeah. Uh, I'm less familiar with the with the ITS case. I mean, I'm aware of the broad brushstrokes, and I don't I know less about their I guess um, intellectual backgrounds. But I would say that 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 maybe the the organized explicit links between deep ecology and the far right are I wouldn't say tenuous because you have you know. Um, Altright.com. You have countercurrent saying deep ecology is a forerunner to the alt right. You have they're very interested. They're paying attention. You know, um, Penti Lincola identifies as a deep ecologist, and he's of course a darling of the of the the far right. So I think those links in some ways are quite explicit. But I think the the the, the deeper um, problem is a more subterranean philosophical. Um, resonance that makes them prone to right-wing interpretations and this is something that has been there for a very long time that you know the, the founder of the institute for social ecology murray bookchin um was really among the first to point out you know he wrote a book it was based on a, a i think an in-person debate in 1987 but 
between him and David Foreman, who's the co-founder of Earth First and a self-described redneck for wilderness. He was a Barry Goldwater conservative Republican who then became this environmental activist, but he didn't have a social analysis. And in fact, he prided himself on not having a social analysis. So it wasn't a surprise then in the 80s that you know the, the radical um, environmental movement associated with Earth First took explicit positions, um, you know, praising HIV for thinning out the human population, for um, increased border controls to stop immigration and, you know, quote unquote, overpopulation. And they had this debate um, where Mur Murray really just kind of pointed out all the racist, sexist, classist assumptions um, of this, this ideology. And actually, this was my, my entry point to social ecology. You know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I was involved with Earth First, you know, uh, forest defense work. And uh, I don't know if I explicitly identify as a deep ecologist, but it's definitely in the milieu, the, the arrogance of anthropocentrism being a, a, a key um, critical component. And then I read this book and I was like, wow, okay, he just kind of mops the floor with this guy. He really doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so social ecology has been, you know, from a very long, I and mean, going back to the 70s, you know, Murray was warning against eco-fascism and the lifeboat ethics. And he, he was a very keen um, analyst of this, whether that was, Dave Foreman, whether that was, you know, uh, anarcho-primitivism and when, you know, quote unquote, green anarchism associated with John Zerzan and um, uh, and the, the Unabomber, John Zerzan, the, the main, you know, theorist of anarcho-primitivism, who Murray Bookchin had really strong polemics with, um, struck up a friendship with the anti-civilizational, you know, actor of, of Ted Kaczynski in prison. And he, you know, warned of these, these he called it eco-brutalism. He warned of these, these, um, overlaps between this kind of right-wing lifeboat ethics and the far right. And lo and behold, he was actually quite prophetic in this regard because now those same far right actors are interested in Ted Kaczynski. And they're also reading John Zerzan. Um, Alexander Dugan has quoted him. He pops, pops up on you know the far right storm, Stormfront website and chats. So um, it's, it's interesting not to say that you know Zerzan himself is obviously not a right-wing actor. He's a He's an anti-civilizational anarchist, but you see these these affinities, this kind of idea of like a, you know, the need for collapse and the need for rebirth, the need for you know, um, nature for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those things are all there in the ether and deep ecology because it's focus, as you said before, it has this undifferentiated understanding of nature and you know humanity. It's it's a it's a biocentric uh, ideology where humans have no special um, point of reference or they're, they're, they're not up for special consideration. So who, who are we to you know, save humans when that could mean, you know, who, why we value human life over the coronavirus or what have you. And this, you know, we see this, another important recent vector is, and we can talk about this later, how um, you know, COVID-19 has, has kind of created another vector for like you know, nature getting revenge, you know, human hubris, humans and nature living too close in proximity and you know, bad things ensue, et cetera. In, in the UK, at least, that sticker campaign you're referring to there um, about, you know, um, humans are the virus and so on. Um, this was organized by a group in the UK called the Hundred Handers, um, which is essentially a kind of a decentralized sticking net stickering network. So mm -hmm. the idea is um, these pictures are posted on a Telegram channel. Um, and then uh, people print out stickers of them, and then those stickers are distributed uh, by people just like randomly. And you're supposed to kind of encounter them slightly in, in odd places. You know, you encounter them on kind of a, on a gate as you're kind of walking into like a park or something, and you're in like in like the bathroom um, mm -hmm. of like a, a nightclub or something. And the sticker says something either very innocuous or something like obviously racist. And the kind of there's a tension between like the really innocuous things and the really obviously racist things. Mm -hmm. um, and so. What was kind of interesting, I think, about that is that the hundred handers were very good um, at mocking at what was at that point in the UK um, a big surge in environmentalism. But they weren't in any way attempting to contest the politics of ecology directly. They were in some ways trying to try and muddy the waters of ecology, which I think is a different kind of tactic. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think, so I think that's, it, that's at least a kind of productive distinction. Yeah, I think I think yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the the case where like there's an explicit right wing actor, but I think those ideas are out there more broadly and they don't necessarily have to come from the right. The right seizes on them because they realize they have some kind of like resonance power. I mean, I think of an earlier group that was not a right-wing group, but um, zero population growth, you know, or the voluntary human extinction movement, which basically had very, very similar language. And it was like, I mean, <laughs> like many of these groups probably might identify as neither left nor right, but it had a lot of, I would say it had more purchase on the left. It was like 
especially the environmental left, like people were interested in these ideas. And um, they had, you know, very similar um, statements and, and stickers even. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where you see this kind of discursive resonance between right and left. And that's, that's I think, what, you know, Bookchin and others um, were kind of like warning against, not that these people are going to become right-wingers themselves or that they were or there's cooptation, but, you know, this is why you have to pay attention to the kind of philosophical assumptions and the ideas that are animating the politics because they point in more or less emancipatory directions. And I think he's um, been proven right in many regards, he even kind of reflected a little bit on this at certain times. I might have come off a little bit too strong in my denunciation of uh, Comrade Foreman, but that's because, you know, this, this, I, I, I'm a, old enough to remember the rise of National Socialism. I've seen these blood and soil ideologies come about. And um, it's not by accident that these things, um, you know, get combined. Where, where do you mean the rise of national socialism? I, mean, I presume you're, you, you didn't grow up in a you no, no, so up in Germany I'm, in the nineteen twenties. <laughs> as Murray Bookchin, and and why? He, oh, he, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Dave Foreman, and and he was an old leftist. He was very you know polemical, and um, he was a harsh a harsh critic of these things. And he for you know for a good reason. Um, people maybe didn't see it there. I mean, another way, another arena I see where some of these polemics have um, proven prophetic is that you know he was a harsh critic of the kind of neo-spiritualist eco some versions of like very spiritual eco-feminism mysticism anti-rationalism and the environmental movement and people are like why are you so harsh on this these are like you know even if it's just like you know maybe slightly annoying new agey woo stuff it's it's ultimately harmless and he said no it's actually not harmless it's like it's an anti-rational um ideology that you can't you can't contest with reason. And in fact, it has a lot to do with, or a lot of resonance with kind of classical philosophical assumptions of the right and of national socialism. It's not this, or at least there's intention, this like uber rationalist and this like anti-rationalist component. And I, you know, you guys have discussed this on your show with the um, conspirituality uh, episode. And, and I think, you know, since the rise of the, um, oh, am I spacing the, the, the shaman, the alt-right shaman of the, uh, of the- um, Jacob Chansley. Yeah, of the of the insurrection being kind of the maybe the, the symbol of this where and that and the rise of Internet culture, but this kind of widespread irrationalism that, you know, I think for at least 40 years since like the new left, this kind of like critique of instrumental reason, rationality was associated with the left and and progressive forces. And the right was, you know, the, the man in the white lab coat, reason, science, enlightenment, etc. And now those categories are, are troubled and muddied. And I think this is another way that Murray was kind of like, um, right. He kind of foresaw that this critique of this throwing the baby of, of uh, reason out with instrumental rationality um, opened the, the way to all kinds of mystical irrationalities that can't be challenged and that often go in hierarchical, violent, um, you know, problematic directions. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're, and this this kind of story plays out like again and again, right? Even uh, amongst uh, totally different groups, like so. For example, Bruno Latour, right, uh, spent mm -hmm. his life in the kind of eighties and nineties right. um, critiquing science, and then right at the end of the nineties, this this thing called why critique has ran out of steam, um, and which he, in which he basically discusses, oh God, I've um, got to the point at which I'm gr agreeing with the climate deniers uh, because I'm yeah. like um, trying to uh, investigate the process of science construction and so on. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of there's a there's I hasten to call it I, I'm trying trying not to call it rather um, a dialectic but there's definitely some sort of like um, movement between these two kind of rationalist irrationalist yeah. poles yeah. um this is an anti-fascist podcast nominally <laughs> so I'm, I'm, i have to ask you about um uh that kind of thing in relation to what you were just talking about with ted kaczynski because mm -hmm. you quoted a um a line ted was right um, which is mm -hmm. a very common hashtag in these spaces but it's also a line that is quoted by people who i don't think i would identify as far right and in some sense, I think this is where um, the kind of ADL, SPLC, anti-racism stuff goes. Um, uh, that's the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, mm -hmm. where, where that stuff goes um, kind of wrong in trying to identify some of the symbols that it says, okay, these symbols are racist, this symbol is racist, this symbol is racist, and so on. In the UK, we have Hope Not Hate that does essentially that same kind of work. Right. Partially because in this exact case, Many of the people who are my age and younger, um, actually a lot younger than me, I don't know why I'm pretending that I'm <laughs> younger than I am, um, like a lot younger than me, like 15, 16, 17, 18, who are using these phrases, identify very strongly with the phrases, but would find all the things about racism and this kind of thing that define far-right politics totally alien to them. Right. 
And in that sense, there's a kind of real ambiguity for anti-fascism about like, how do we approach these people who are kind of using the tools of fascist uh, rhetoric and so on, um, but actually don't really identify with any of these things. And in fact, see the anti-civilizational stuff as a kind of anti-racist drive, as at least John Zerzan did as well um, at the beginning of his um, kind of uh, trajectory through his stuff. Does that have any purchase on left strategy, do you think? Or how do, how do we approach these things as in terms of left strategy? Or is it that the problem is anti-fascism is a blunt instrument for a much more nuanced collection of problems? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a complicated question, a tough nut to crack. I mean, obviously symbols and thinkers are, are up for, you know, grabs and they're open to interpretations. And I mean, when I was growing up, you know, it was very much Kaczynski was a figure of the left and the, and the, the you know, environmental scene and especially the kind of like, you know, uh, eco-anarchist milieu. And he was he was kind of the hero, which is why Zerzan, you know, had this affinity and struck up a friendship with him. And then, yeah, it's been very interesting to see it being taken up by the right. And it's interesting to hear from you that, you know, relatively, I don't know if apolitical is the right word, but that having resonance with young people who would reject the racism, but embrace the kind of, you know, reject modernity and um, whatnot. And I think that's, I think that's maybe also like a new kind of like cultural backdrop for these discussions is the kind of, we might call it some kind of um, the capitalist realism of, of the current um, present or, or this, 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 idea that we can imagine, you know, whether it's Jameson, Zizek, whoever, that we can better imagine the end of the world than a minor change to capitalism. And obviously far right environmentalists, but also left environmentalists for many years, you know, they're preparing for this supposedly in inevitable social and ecological collapse that'll create this, you know, um, alternately lawless world or whether you see that as a good or a bad thing where real men or, or this, you know, decentralized communities can restart the world as they see it as, a, as, a, as an opening and a lack of faith that real change is possible. So that collapse or that escape that Kaczynski um, represents is, is a really powerful romantic um, urge and longing. And it's like, it also appeals to this Western individualism of like the, the lone heroic man fighting with, with nature against this, you know, corrupt, decadent modern society. And, and uh, you see, I think you see it too now, like with, um, what's his name, the, both Epstein and the McAfee, this like the, the conspiratorial worldview of like, these people were right that, you know, the system is like, you know, trying to get rid of them because they spoke truth, even if they were problematic in various ways, you know, they're the, the lone just figure fighting heroically against a, a corrupt system. And to me, this also, again, just goes back to the need for like theoretical precision and, and philosophical interrogation of our ideas. And this is, again, what has always drawn me to social ecology, whether that's in our critiques of capitalism and our critiques of environmental problems and um, our critiques of racism, that whatever it is, our understandings of nature that, you know, we have to be think carefully about these things because of these, um, you know, unwanted bedfellows or because it could push us in trajectories that um, really are, are problematic or are, or uh, anti-emancipatory. So I think that also speaks to the kind of like degradation, intellectual degradation of the age in some ways to, to borrow from one of those right-wing, um, those tropes that, you know, this, this the meme culture, conspiracy culture, internet culture, it's obviously not in many ways geared towards like a real fine tune analysis. So these like the, the blunt power, as you said, of like a meme or of a, a Ted was right. It's just like, it's a moral stance and you don't have to really unpack it. So it's very open to left and right interpretations. Yes, it's uh, uh, with my kind of Adorno hat on. It's a um, insufficiently determinate negation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. That's a stupid thing to say. No, keep that. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's one. That's part of the problem in here. Like, you know, I lived in Germany for quite a few years, and here we were reading, like, you know, maybe John Zerzan, if you're on the far intellectual wing, but uh, you know, whatever, Chomsky, Zinn, punk rock, the, the, the kind of political culture of politicization, I guess, at least in, in my youth, um, was was fairly, you know, whatever, unsophisticated, but you know, in Germany, they're reading Adorno at 15, 16. So it's, it's a different set of assumptions. And, and uh, but yeah, the, the trajectory is a little different. What were you? Sorry, I just gotta go back a bit. Um, what were you talking about with Epstein and McAfee? What, what have you what have you seen about that? I just see a lot of like, you know, P 
people on my lefty social milieu also kind of sharing sometimes tongue in cheek, you know, like Ben Garrison cartoons about, you know, the deep state taking both of them out because they spoke truth to power. But I also think there is like a certain kernel to it of, of the people posting at least um, that uh, kind of believes that, I guess. And, and that this like, or maybe another one, um, those are obvious examples where, you know, two people who supposedly killed themselves, but um, Hunter Biden, like, you know, the, the lone man who's like kind of like fighting against the, um, the world, just the authenticity, they're authentic actors, I guess. And again, that's something I think that for, you know, from the new left until at least the 90s was in many ways coded as a left liberal rebellious posture. And obviously, like that's Angela Nagel's point in Kill All Normies is that the right has taken on this oppositional, you know, authentic, rebellious culture. And I mean, that ultimately has, I would say, has no meaning anymore. It's, it's not any kind of a stable political trajectory. And that people like, you know, Thomas Frank have been making that point for 30 years that counterculture and this like antinomian opposition to the status quo itself, you know, it's it's a fu dad politics where you're you're um, you don't have like a consistent set of norms that you're acting on. It's always reactionary, and we're seeing that very clearly now. Who are the real rebels? I mean, there was this guy actually last night. I was at this, I was having dinner with a friend who had like a you know it was a white dude with dreadlocks and like a Molotov cocktail in the t-shirt. And I was really trying to like guess what their politics were because like I had a strong sense this person was a right winger actually um but you know on the outside in the 1990s or 2000s that would have been a very different thing I don't know it's extraordinary isn't it that the you know, symbols of radicalism have moved from you know a t-shirt with a snake on it to yeah. like um Ted was right or like a swastika or something right um this kind of extraordinary um transformation uh who are the real I, institutionists well, this is the question. I mean, so in some ways, like this is the question. Um, as I was saying before, like that there is a negation in saying Ted was right, and I wonder if we will reach a stage with, or we are fast reaching a stage with um, climate change, and um, the uh, I don't want to use um, degraded as a term, but um, the kind of absurdity of the uh, what I would describe as the kind of imperialist um, environmental circus of people like Elon Musk and so on, mm -hmm. um, who I should be clear, did not cause the, or order the coup in Bolivia, but the uh, Bolivian president thinks he did. So I'm just reporting that aspersion and yeah. uh, making no particular comments on it. Do you think we're heading to a situation with climate change where the simple force of negation, of saying not this, will override the specificity of that negation? Yeah, um, I think we're, we've, I mean, I think that's part of this, the point I was trying to make about, the capitalist realism of collapse that people I think have no faith that th things can change and they're going they're, they're changing now they're getting worse there is this sense of like you know resignation I mean I think of projects like the Dark Mountain project Paul Kings North over where you are um, that you know this we, we've given up and all we can do is like aestheticize it essentially um, and that opens up space for groups like, you know, attack the system, this, this group, you know, but with Keith Preston, but also with like local Native American activists and bioregional activists who are like, we all just need to unite and fight against, you know, this, this empire, whatever it is we identify as the real problem, whether it's capitalism, whether it's Jewish global conspiracy, whether it's, you know, um, white replacement, what have you, we're all going to have our decentralized, you know, stateless gangs living off the land in a brutal social Darwinian universe. It's already a familiar one. It's like all the most popular cultural products are kind of like variants, whether it's Walking Dead on this, this kind of theme or another one I was watching, I forget the name of it, but like, you know, it's an end of the earth and it's like a literal lifeboat ethics who's going to get to that lifeboat and get off of or into the bunker or whatever um and so i think you, you, another like interesting you know political um vector there is if you accept that's going to happen is the kind of doomer versus bloomer do you, do you celebrate it or, or are you going to be the posi person who's like the, it's the positive potentials of the collapse versus the negative and, and how you orient yourself to that inevitability um which has got kind of a weird form of post-apocalyptic bipartisanship um, what's interesting about the kind of the the appropriation of the the lifeboat ethics narrative there which is from Garrett Hardin in a 1974 ethic, um, essay um, is that in some ways it, it, it registers uh, the, 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 sorry the melding of that lifeboat ethic with um, this other stuff about uh, collapse and civilization being doomed and so on is that it seems to meld um, a distinction between Malthusianism 
in the past and neo-Malthusianism and the, kind of a, a break between them. And the break between them is sometimes read, not always, but sometimes read as a shift between, um, in Malthus, there being too little civilization mm-hmm. and therefore being too much reproduction without limit and so on. Right. Or you know just babies, to a, a neo-Malthusian critique, which is there is too much civilization, right. and in fact that we need to keep people. Um, this is what uh, Andreas Malm and Zeckin Collective call uh, green nationalism. Mm. And I do we need to keep uh, people in the kind of the poorer countries of the world um, because that is where they have you know less carbon dioxide emissions and so on, mm. and therefore they should stay there. Um, and therefore the borders are used as kind of this um, climate change justification. And yeah. so the melding of this. Uh, lifeboat ethic, which very much stands in the kind of um, Malthusian way, with this kind of collapse kind of thing, um, which is very much like the Neo-Malthusian, or like at least it's a, it's a, it believes that there's uh, that civilization is bad and that we need to kind of revert. Um, it seems to have, want, to, want to have it kind of both ways. I think mm. this is just like a not a kind of effect of having this um, of trying to resolve by force this binary that I was mentioning earlier between moralism and amoralism and so on. Um, I wanted to ask you about pleasure in collapse. Okay. What kinds of pleasures are there in collapse fantasies? Interesting. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of pleasure because people love consuming images of, you know, collapse, whether that's games or movies or TV shows. So I think the the pleasure, one obvious pleasure is that the, there's the collapse, then there's the freedom of the reconstruction and the rebirth. And it's the kind of Swiss family Robinson quasi, there's a quasi utopian impulse. And I think that's, that comes across and, you know, people like John Zerzan, you know, they want the collapse because afterwards, um, there's also like, you know, there's a, I would, one thing I haven't really mentioned, but I think one, um, allure, part of the allure of this kind of like alt-right ecology ecofascism is it's a masculinist ecology you're being tough you're being prepared you're ready to survive and so you can channel all those years of playing you know first person shooter video games and survival whatever into like you know the the struggle and you can see this in the the capital insurrection very clearly all these people larping you know all their favorite video games and and the assault so there's like you know they get to be men being men um the ubermensch elite etc and maybe ted was like one one variant you can pick your pick your player pick your cultural um, archetype or flavor for that so um there's the pleasure of the fight there's the pleasure of like you know, the Paul King's North, you can just sit back and write some poetry about the collapse, watch it all fall. I mean, I think of the last scene of um, Fight Club, one of those interesting left-right crossover cultural artifacts of a very masculinist critique of late capitalist society that also had, you know, was very open to right-wing quasi-fascist interpretations and Jack Donovan's been, or excuse me, um, why am I forgetting the name of the author? the author of that book, whose name is escaping me, is, you know, pals with Jack Donovan, one of the main figures in the kind of alt-right, you know, neo-masculinist manosphere, who's one of the leaders of the Wolves of Vinland, one of the groups I mentioned in the, the chapter, this like hyper-masculine, you know, neo-tribal pagan, we get together and, you know, uh, worship nature, paint ourselves with blood, fight each other, etc. And, you know, um, there's, that's fun, you know, it's like you get to wear these cool biker cuts, you have, you know, tap into these things that are popular biker culture mma black metal stuff like that and it's like you know it's a cool subculture and it has these ideas of like survival and you know it's it's open enough that you know yeah some of them tried to burn down black churches and others are you know blah 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 but then you could also you know you can be the apolitical guys that just like to drink beer in the woods and i think that has a enormous um popularity i guess that a pleasure for sure yeah no totally i mean there's a uh uh, a great article somewhere out there about not um, Jack Donovan's politics, but about Jack Donovan's Instagram account and kind of wow. trying to look at how these are actually kind of maybe in some ways the same thing. And then maybe yeah, the, yeah. the politics is the Instagram account, the aesthetic um, massively overdetermines it. Um, you can send that to me. I'd be curious because I haven't looked back at uh, his work and, you know, since I wrote this some time ago and it sounds interesting. Talking of aesthetics and talking of LARPing, um, I wanted to. St- ask about QAnon and how you see QAnon as integrating ecologist themes. I mean, there are, um, according to one uh, typology, there are, I think, seven distinct parts of QAnon. Um, there's like, uh, in terms of their various uh, ideas about what exists and what kind of technology there is and so on. And at least one of those parts is this kind of um, integrating uh, what you described already as kind of woo or kind of uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, 
unclear new agey ideas. Do you see this and do you see this conspirituality trend as merging with a, a kind of ecological politics? Or do you think those are things that are going to be kept separate? Or how do you see this interaction worth playing out in the future? I think it relates to your earlier question about like, um, I guess it's about pluralism. It's like a post-ideological world where there's room enough for, for everyone. Um, and the far right is much better, I would say, at doing that than the far left or the left is. You know, it's like the classic meme about um, circular firing squad versus like, oh yeah, come join our whatever group, da, 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 da. So I think there's plenty of room and plenty of like um, entry points to to bring environmental, you know, discourse into QAnon specifically and the right in general. But I think like this kind of, I mean, I think your conspirituality episode is really good and talking about this, like all the vitamin supplements, all the healthy living, all the, all the yoga stuff, um, <laughs> The, the rise of women in, in the right. Um, this is, you know, the kind of like self-help discourse, which is of course there with, with men too, Jack Donovan being a major figure of that. Um, I think these are all um, sometimes subtly and sometimes explicitly environmentally coded about natural living, living in nature, being healthy, body, um, you know, body cult, body positivity, um, working out, et cetera. It's, it's very often a kind of like very individualist, you know, it can have this kind of neoliberal bent as well, like, you know, this, we're going to be the superior creature, self-help, self-mastery, etc. Um, and the, I think the environmental aspect of that is usually like, it's, it's often framed in terms of like, you're, it's a unity of nature and self, right? Because your body is the temple, you are natural. So, you know, purifying your own body is part of this broader project. And if it also helps the trees and, you know, climate change, uh, great. I was wondering about the appearance of climate change here in this discourse, because in some ways it seems that the, um, that in some, that climate change is a very complicated object. Um, and you can think of, in, in, in the same way, there are many shades of denial. There are many shades of acceptance of climate change. It's not just that everyone who agrees, you know, also thinks whatever the IPCC thinks, um, right. or at least like the more, um, uh, the less conservative members of the IPCC thinks. Right. Like we don't all agree on what climate change is and how it works, you know? Um, I mean, I think you and I probably would, but uh, most people, uh, it's, it's not like a settled question. Um, Sorry, that's really badly phrased. It is a scientifically settled question. What I mean is that when we discuss climate change politics, we're not always talking about the same kind of thing. So, for example, um, you could say that something like a, a recognition that there is something wrong in my relationship to nature or one's relationship to nature, and that that exists at a global scale and that mm -hmm. requires some sort of global transformation, that's a very dim kind of, you know, dim reflection of the acknowledgement of the reality of climate change. And even that to some extent, is like uh, uh, often unacknowledged in QAnon. And I think particularly unacknowledged in QAnon because QAnon has this uh, this moral structure where it's like this guy against this guy, Donald Trump versus George Soros. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and like, okay, well, what, what does it mean to say that there's um, this many parts per million of carbon dioxide in that context? It doesn't mean anything. It's not a, it's not a comprehensible um, idea. In which context, I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the thing, this kind of dialectic between neoconservatism and the alt-right. And of course, people are very quick to forget, um, maybe not so much in America, but they were quick to forget over here, at least, um, that George Bush ever existed um, mm -hmm. and that Dick Cheney uh, was also uh, a monster, um, in addition to Trump, and in a very different kind of way, in a way that was much more, uh, you know, in some ways like, you know, in keeping with neoliberal uh, progressivism, Dick Cheney was in favor of um, gay marriage in 2001, um, but he also uh, invaded Iraq. So yeah, yeah. there's like <laughs> this yeah. kind of, um, yeah. Um, how do you see that dialectic playing out between neoconservatism and what you might think of the alt-right or the far-right or something like that? Is there this dialectic or are they simply two sides of the same thing? And if we're thinking about climate change adaptation politics in the deep future, can we think of them as converging? Like, would it not, would they not be useful to each other? Would a neoconservatism that had a clear, robust, racialized view of nature not be more potent than either is the, you know, um, the alt-right's aversion to interventionism plus the, you know, the neoconservatives kind of lack of uh, nature politics or something like that? Would this not be a more potent combination? Um, I don't want to do kind of gain of function research on the podcast, but, you know, it's like the same kind of uh, problem here, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, that's an interesting question because on the one hand, I think the alt-right specifically, you know, posited itself as an alternative to neoconservatism as something that was, you know, too Jewish, too interventionist, uh, an ideology tainted by 
both these things, the leftist, leftist and Jewish um, suspicions, um, what else, overly urban, intellectual, Jewish, ideological. Um, so I think they, although they had this kind of like orientation against it, it could offer, like you said, that more robust um, and post, post Bush era, um, you know, um, moral or normative um, foundation that could like, and then maybe Trump, uh, you know, in some ways was the answer to that. I mean, he was the all right candidate who, you know, in some ways posed as, as you know, taking on those critiques of interventionism. And, you know, it was famously, I think when Spencer kind of broke ranks is after one of the, the um, what was the attack on Libya, I believe. Um, so I think that they, they, they could pose, as you said, as that more robust alternative to the kind of classical neoconservatism that's like bankrupt and is a defender of the status quo and also maybe too, too narrow and it's like very rigid kind of um, quasi-Christian whatever, you know, we, we need more, we need room for the pagans, we need room for other, other actors um, who don't kind of have this old school 1950s Americana um, thrust, I guess. And that also speaks to the kind of more like isolationist um, less. And that's also like a post ideological, who are we to intervene in the affairs of other nations? Like, let's just, you know, this kind of isolationist um, tendency. We can definitely look forward to uh, seeing how Tucker Carlson um, tries to merge these two tendencies. I would not be surprised if he does a reasonably good job uh, of yeah. Yeah, both yeah. those things at once. He's, he's quite the um, synthetic, syncretic and th synthetic thinker. Given, given the kinds of his also like Grantian, uh, Alison Grant kind of social position as well, right? As mm -hmm. a kind of American patrician, which as you noted in this article uh, for Vox, uh, or the interview for Vox, um, was the kind of uh, main uh, current of American environmentalism for a very long time. Right. Tell us about the Institute for Social Ecology. Yeah, so the Institute for Social Ecology is a popular education center and kind of a think tank that was founded in 1974 by Murray Bookchin and Dan Choderkoff in Vermont. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's very much inspired by the ideas of Murray Bookchin, who's kind of the seminal thinker of social ecology and one of the first people who really was trying to articulate um, an explicitly kind of left-wing environmental philosophy and politics and introduce that to the left. So he wrote an article called Ecology and Revolutionary Thought in 1964. That was really like a very important segue in infusing these two things, which again, we ahistorically project backwards that, you know, environmentalism was always this province of the liberal left. And that's really only been the case since the seventies. And he even encountered, you know, quite a bit of resistance to this project in the early days, even from fairly, um, you know, an orthodox leftist, like, you know, the situationists in France that call them the Smokey the Bear anarchists, like, oh, this is bourgeois claptrap, you know, this talk of nature and trees and environment, which, you know, maybe they had in mind exactly the Madison Grants and the people in the UK trying to protect their, you know, traditional hunting grounds from the poors, etc. Um, but he was, you know, really trying to articulate, um, you know, the, the, the potentially universalizing and anti-capitalist uh, impulses of environmental degradation in a way that you know really was um, quite ahead of the game and um, so the isc we offer classes we just finished a week-long summer school we do publications um, we do annual gatherings we do all kinds of um, educational work we do a lot of movement networking as well we help seed a group called symbiosis which is a, a network of dual power oriented directly democratic organizations in north america um, and yeah, folks should check us out. We do all kinds of cool stuff. We have a bunch of a variety of online courses. We actually are kicking off next week, um, a reading group, an eight week reading group of, of Bookchin's magnum opus, The Ecology of Freedom, which is kind of his counter theorization to Marx's Kapital that um, attempts to kind of broaden his focus on class exploitation and class struggle to uh, anti-hierarchical lens, focusing on domination in a way that's trying to move that, you know, is really trying to move away from the critiques that we've heard for many years of Marx's, uh, you know, economic determinism, reductionism, what have you, um, and the articulation of an ecological, democratic, and you know, broadly and to use contemporary parlance, intersectional analysis of power and domination. And we we offer another class in the fall called Ecology Democracy Utopia. That's kind of an introduction to social ecology. It looks at some of the kind of main ideas, um, our analysis of you know the nature of environmental and social problems, um, analysis of capitalism and the state. Um, movement history, strategy, theory, nature philosophy, um, 
agriculture technology, a bunch of other topics. So yeah, folks should check it out. It's, um, it's, it's in some ways, I mean, Bookchin and I would say the ISC more generally have really been kind of like architects of the modern left, like positions that we kind of have been staking out for a long time that were kind of like seemed rather marginal at the time have become increasingly conventional wisdom, you know, discussions of, of um, direct democracy, of an anti-capitalist um, ecological perspective of a certain form of prefigurative politics, even though that's gone in, in some ways problematic directions uh, itself. But um, and the ISC has, you know, for for over 40 years now, been really this kind of nexus and a, and a place for movements to reflect on their own praxis. We're really a place where like social movement actors and intellectuals, academics come together and and think through these problems of theory and praxis that we're discussing here. How is it that the way we understand nature impacts our our political action and goes in you know better or worse directions? How is it that our analysis of the state and history, you know, impacts um, are where movements like Black Lives Matter will go. Will, you know, generate another generation of um, black elites or will it create a more um, radically democratic politics from the bottom up? So th these are some of the questions and the issues we we grapple with and um, yeah, come grapple with them with us. What is nature and uh, what should it be? Oh my gosh, that is a, a very big and very loaded question. Um, nature is, 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 is everything. That's, that's the easy answer. It's, it's, it's very all encompassing. And it's, as I mentioned in this article, it's a projection screen. So you have the right that wants to see it as this hierarchical red and tooth and claw competitive Darwinian, um, you know, uh, place. And then you have left-wing thinkers from Kropotkin up to Bookchin himself who look at nature and see it as this place of cooperation, of symbiosis, of um, mutualism, of, of mutual aid, etc. And I would say that you can find obviously all of these. <laughs> that, that's, that's my easy answer of the everything. You can find um, things to justify your worldview in nature, depending on what, where you look. And, and there's, there's, you know, there's been a very interesting long running debate within the, you know, already fairly small social ecology milieu about Murray Bookchin's philosophical project of dialectical naturalism, which is, you know, obviously a, you can tell from the term itself, a kind of a, a repose to, um, Marx's historical materialism that attempts to kind of articulate a nature philosophy that that is neither dualism a dualism of like you know man versus nature kind of the classic Cartesian or this kind of deep ecology Taoist monism where we just kind of boil them all together into this undifferentiated um, mass to like dialectically you know um, think together these these two kind of classic modalities and in the process he tries to elucidate what he sees as like these principles in nature that also extend to what he called second nature the realm of society and, and human um, human intervention and his project was to kind of reconcile these into a, a potentially new third nature or free nature um, which is you know where society and and human and non-human um, nature are living together harmoniously in accordance with, you know, these kind of principles and tendencies that he saw in nature, which um, tend towards that more Kropotkinian um, view of mutuality, symbiosis, you know, he talked about um, some of the, the main principles at work, um, basically those ones I just mentioned, uh, mutualism, um, interdependence, uh, unity and diversity, Sorry, there's a unity and diversity of dogs barking in the background here, um, which I, I think, you know, I think he, he offers a very important corrective to kind of, um, you know, narrowly and social Darwinian views of nature as this like intensely hierarchical competitive place. But you could, and many have made the argument that he bends the stick too far the other direction and simply projects a kind of like left egalitarianism into nature and kind of cherry picks those while ignoring those. And this combines with a, like a more complicated philosophy of history about, you know, what's, what things that merely happen, which he calls chronicles versus capital H history, which are things that kind of like fulfill the rational potentiality of nature and society, like potentialities for freedom, for self-organization, um, for complexity, for fecundity, for creativity. These were kind of some of the driving, um, in his view, some of the driving organizing principles of first and second nature that for him formed an objective um, philosophical um, project and an ethos to ground your politics. So he was really concerned with like, you know, critiques of cultural relativism and how do you, how do you ground any kind of project for, for human emancipation? Um, 
And uh, so he looked to nature in this regard, but in a very kind of nuanced dialectical sense, I would say. Is that the, um, is that the core? Is, is reason the core? Is reason the core? Yeah. Of his project or of? Yeah. Uh, hmm. This is tricky because towards the end of his life too, he also was very much engaged in polemics against the rise of postmodernism, post-structuralism and kind of critiques of reason and rationality and enlightenment thought. And he was very, in some ways, wistful and nostalgic about the left that was like a left, which I would suggest he actually helped in part bury um, with the rise of a new sensibility. Um, but he was very, very kind of like nostalgic for those things. And part, a big part of that was because of the rejection of reason and organization and other things he thought that were really like necessary for the left, but also necessary for the good society, I would say. And so, he, and I think he also saw human reason as like an imminently natural thing that's like embedded in our, you know, our capacity for reasons embedded in our brains and our, uh, the way that we've, you know, uh, evolved historically and and intervened in nature. I mean, one, one of the things that really um, blew my mind early on reading Bookchin was, you know, when and this was when I identified as some kind of a quasi-deep ecologist and I thought anthropocentrism was this big problem. He said, well, you know, really for asking humans to ref be reflexive about their um, relationship to the natural world and take those things into consideration, we're being deeply anthropocentric. We're the only species that does that and even can does that, can do that because, you know, bears are ursocentric and wolves are canocentric. So, you know, they might not have the same capacities for environmental destruction, but for us to, for when, you know, deep ecologists even ask you to, to um, think like a mountain or take other species lives into consideration, that's a deeply human thing. And that was just like, blew my mind. So I think that he saw those two things as constant nature and reason and sought to defend both in a dialectical way. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's really brilliant summary. Uh, do you have anything you want to say before we finish? Anything to suggest people go and read? Would you like to, um, and so on? Yeah, I mean, again, I already put it out there, but um, you know, I, I invite everyone to check out the Institute for Social Ecology or our, our online programs. As I mentioned, this reading group and our classes. We also have a lot of online classes that you can take at any time in a self-directed form if the, the real-time seminars don't work for you. Um, yeah, I mean, read some Murray Bookchin stuff. I co-edited a book of his essays a few years back called The Next Revolution um, that had a really nice forward by Ursula Le Guin. So this kind of pioneering figure of utopian science fiction kind of reflecting on the relationship between the two. And, and there's a whole interesting backstory there in terms of, you know, Bookchin was both praised and criticized as being the pinnacle of utopian social thought. And where have his ideas been taken up? Well, on the one hand, he was a, he was a big influence on Ursula Le Guin, this titan of, of, of science fiction and fantasy. Um, and then the other place is in the dystopian world of the, the aftermath of the Syrian civil war and the fight against ISIS and Rojava, which is, you know, a movement that has been deeply inspired by Murray Bookchin's ideas of social ecology and that we've, you know, have strong ties of solidarity with as, you know, building a pluralistic, um, cooperative, um, feminist uh, social project in the Middle East. So, you know, it's a really wild story about how these ideas from this, this grumpy New York slash Vermont Jewish anarchist ideas get transported into Kurdistan. Um, so that's wild and people, you know, can look into that. Um, and yeah, I, I think just, you know, thinking about these questions in a deeper way, just um, always trying to think around the corner, anticipating new um, new problems that our old categories and our old like ideologies can't make sense of. And I think some of these things I was trying to get at in, in my essay, I mean, for example, the rights taking up of like the logic or the, the discourse of post-colonialism and, and indigenism and your, your conspirituality um, guest you know mentioned this as well that like you know some of the main people both in in Oceania was like a Maori and then here was a Navajo person here uh, in some of the the far-right movements here there's been you know indigenous uh, or indigenous participation so how do we make sense of that well I argue that you know there's a certain kind of blood and soil ideology that um, is in some ways shared by both that we might think through and and just that you know things that we code as like inherently left or right can shift with with times and with context so to think um, more deeply about those about those things and um, 
that's a it's, it's a fun and a lifelong project and i think it leads to better politics as well and better and stronger social movements and so i thank you for doing this podcast because i think you you really do a great service in this regard of um, hosting some really interesting people who are um, thinking through these questions and hopefully updating our ideas and categories and our visions of you know uh, a more emancipatory future that doesn't fall into some of these traps and that thinks about these problems in interesting and creative new ways. Great. Thank you very much for uh, coming. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. I'm Kami. And I'm Franz. And together we are co-hosts of the Doomer vs. Bloomer podcast on the Channel Zero Network. Every week I'm going to complain about how the world is fucked. Things are definitely going to get worse before they get better. And we're all probably going to die. And I disagree with Kami and think that having hope is important. We can th- make things better, but only if we believe we can and put in all the effort we're able to into organizing against capitalism in the state. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's the core of our podcast, y'all. It's our shtick. We disagree. <laughs> uh, find our show on SoundCloud or whenever, wherever you find podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Doomer v. Bloomer. Rules. <laughs>